welcome to Nature Revisited, the podcast. My name is Stefan Van Norden, and on this episode, I am joined by Jeff Nicholson, the author of The Lost Art of Walking and Walking on Thin Air. Jeff joins me from his home in the UK. Ever since reading Paul Thoreau's Kingdom by the Sea, a journey around Great Britain, I have been wanting to do an episode about the British fascination with walking. And when it comes to walking, the British Isles is uniquely different than most places. The island is home to an amazing network of public footpaths and trails that crisscross the entire island. Some of those footpaths are centuries old and are protected by laws. After reading Jeff's The Lost Art of Walking, I invited him onto the podcast to talk about his fascination with walking and how important it is in the British culture to have the right to roam. Jeff, thank you for joining me. As we have mentioned, you live in the UK, which has an amazing system of public pathways that crisscross the island and is home to some of the best rambling in the world. So it is only fitting that you are a walker. So let's start there. Why is walking so important? Um, Well, you know, it took me quite a a long time to work that out. And I think, in fact, writing the book was part of the process of of finding out what it meant to me. Like a lot of people, a lot of Englishmen that I've talked to, we, we have this sort of, one of our first experiences of walking is with our father. My parents were, they were good parents. I think they didn't really know what to do with me, you know? So Sunday morning, my dad and I would go out and we'd just walk. I mean, we wouldn't go and see great sights. We wouldn't go and take part in sports or anything. But I would have this two, three-hour period with my dad, and we'd go walking. I mean, some talking, but, you know, it wasn't a great... There were no revelations shared. I find a lot of people have got a slightly similar experience. I was born and brought up in in Sheffield, which is an industrial city in the north of England, an old steel town. It's very close to an area of great natural beauty called the Peak District. That's where you go for a day out if you come from Sheffield. So it's limestone country, hills have got caverns. So it's kind of a thing that the kids kind of love. Everyone likes going into the earth and into the cavern. And so a lot of my early experiences, a lot of my early memories about walking are about walking with my parents. And yet in England we have the tradition of the the English seaside holiday. English seaside towns can be rather melancholy places. Again, I think my parents had this problem. They weren't really sure what to do when they got there. And most English seaside towns have a strip of sidewalk, two or three miles long, that goes along the edge of the town, and it's up against the sea. But it's not in any sense wild or rural. You're walking along what is a 
a city street, and it's called the promenade. That's what we did. We used to walk from one end of the promenade to another. So all those sorts of things are kind of part of the... They're, they're my earliest memories of walking, my early experiences of walking. Interestingly, after my father had died, my mother was a widow, did my very best to look after her. I lived in London at the time, and she still lived up north in Sheffield. And we still had that sort of problem about what to do. And we just used to walk. We used to walk in parks. We used to walk the streets of London, the streets of Sheffield. I mean, it was very satisfying. And I would occasionally say to my mum, well, shall we do something else? Shall we go and see a, a movie? Shall we, uh, shall we go to the zoo? And she never wanted to do any of that. Just walking the streets was enough for her. And at that point, it was enough for me. And it satisfied us both at the time. And I'd always had this dream of going to live in London. And it took me a while to get there. But once I did, I used to walk and walk and walk. And London is vast and it's not unknowable. But you can't know it all. However much you know, there are these little nooks and crannies and corners. But that idea of just exploring a city or getting to know a city or getting to know a place, any place, you can't know it by going out in a car. I get out there on foot and walk and look at things. That's, I think, how it all comes into being a writer. The process of walking and the process of writing are very connected for me. It's about observation, I think. Walking makes me feel very good. But at the same time, it's about looking and noticing things. And this sort of accumulation of information, of, of noticing and seeing, and then at some point turning that into a piece that I've written. It seems that writing, walking, observing, it all seems to be part of the same process, but none of it would be possible without the walking. When did you first realize that you were a walker? And did the cultural aspect of it have an influence on you? Probably was when I was a teenager, 16, 17, when I was just starting to, to be independent. Um, but that also sort of corresponds with when I was first starting to read, you know, for want of a better word, the, the English classic. And I recognized something there, I mean, both in like Wordsworth and Jane Austen and, and Charlotte Bronte. There's a huge amount of walking in Jane Austen. The characters are always, they're walking four miles here and four miles there. And they don't seem to have any fears about walking. And of course, Wordsworth was, was walking with his sister, Dorothy. It did seem like walking was, as you say, a part of the English culture. Is it the opening of the old curiosity shop where uh, in Dickens, the first chapter is about walking around London at night. That seemed to me a thing I could I read that and say, oh, yeah, yeah, I get that. I'm on, I'm on his wavelength. I'm, I'm part of his tribe. And then, you know, there are people like um, Thomas de Quincey, the opium addict who seems to wander around, you know, a very specific version of, his, of the city that's his version. And I think that's probably true of what all walkers do, whether you're walking in... Death Valley or the Lake District or the Australian Outback. You absorb what's there, but at the same time, you kind of process it and it becomes your Death Valley, your Australian Outback. But in that sense that you you look at it through your own eyes and you, you observe things that not everybody else would see. But to be surprised while walking is a, is a, is a wonderful thing. In the UK, 
these footpaths, some which often actually cross private property, are protected by laws. Yeah. The right to roam laws are national laws that are directed towards these public pathways. For example, the Country and Rights of Way Act of 2000 and the Land and Reform Act of 2003, giving everyone in Britain the right to walk on these public pathways, even if some of them goes through private property. The right to roam is sort of complicated. I mean, both conceptually and, and I think legally as well. It's a wonderful phrase, isn't it? The right to roam. We don't have the, the right to roam absolutely anywhere. But conceptually, it's a wonderful idea, isn't it? That this is this country, we can go wherever we want, we can do, you know, we can do whatever we want. I mean, that's not quite true. I mean, there are various things you can't do. They often go through fields. In one corner, there'll be a, a sign that says public footpath. There'll be crops growing on either side. Um, but you'll see that there's a trodden, muddy path through the middle. That's the public footpath. I think there are about 140,000 miles of public footpaths in England. And some of them are incredibly beautiful and grand and go into the great open spaces. But often they just go through like an industrial estate or a suburban development. And the right to roam gives you access to what's referred to as open access land. And that's about, you know, that's about three million acres of mountains and moors, many of which remain privately owned. You are walking on somebody's property and you have every right to do so. It's primarily for walkers. I think talking to you has made me realize how singular this is and how unusual and part of the British psyche that you can go out there and walk wherever you want. The whole business of when the English and the British started walking in the country as a sort of serious pursuit must have been after the Industrial Revolution. Once you had the Industrial Revolution, and you know my hometown of Sheffield is a, a prime example of that, hundreds of thousands of people moved from the country into the town. And in Sheffield, they were mostly working in the steel industry. When they'd finished work, they would go back to their small terraced house surrounded by lots of other terraced houses. And so people began to think, well, you know, we'll get away. From, I mean, I've shown Sheffield had the most hideous pollution in the early part of the 20th century. So just to get a break from the, the dirt and the grime and to get away from work, walking as a leisure pursuit must have started about then, 1750 to 1850. That idea of going out on a Sunday afternoon, you drive out in your car, you park, you probably have a pub lunch, and then you have a two or three hour walk. That strikes me as wholly, stereotypically, archetypally British, if not absolutely defining. Again, in the Peak District in Sheffield, it was 1932, a famous mass trespass of a place called Kinderscout, which is in the Peak District. You know, it was private land, and it was, I think it was the Duke of Devonshire? It was used mostly for shooting, for shooting game. Uh, and the plebeians, the ordinary people, weren't allowed up there. The Peak District is very beautifully situated between Manchester and Sheffield and the Midlands. 
when it was decided that they would do a mass trespass, they came from far and wide, and they were arrested. Interestingly, and I, I didn't realize this until fairly recently, trespass, although it, it may be a crime, it's a civil crime. It's a civil offense. So the police couldn't arrest them just for being on the land. They had to arrest them for something else. And so they arrested them for rioting. And, of course, the only reason they rioted was because the police tried to arrest them. That got an enormous amount of sympathy from the world at large. That was a large part, or certainly a part, of this development. A lot of these laws about public rights of way are quite late, well into the 20th century before, before they came into effect. And I think it's got something to do with English class and English class resentment. We don't like that idea of the rich guys own everything and we're not allowed to, to walk on their land. You know, we can walk there, but we can't walk there. And we should be free to walk across somebody's field or along a, a public footpath or on a piece of open moor. Talking to you has made me realize how little I, and I think most people in Britain, actually think about this. We take it largely for granted. You know, I mean, there's a, at the end of my street, there's a public footpath that goes across an industrial estate between two warehouses, and it takes you down to the river. You know, the, the guys who built the industrial estate, they wouldn't have built a path across it if they didn't have to. But the public footpath was already there, and so, so it stayed. And that's, as you're making me realize, this is rather, this is rather wonderful and special. I find it fascinating how folks there use such a colorful language when it comes to talking about walking. Can you describe some of the more subtle differences between, say, rambling, wandering, roaming, hill walking, and even scrambling? If I get to the point where I'm scrambling either up or down, I think I'm not walking anymore. I think I'm on the edge of climbing. I say that if anybody asks me, um, I describe myself as a walker. You know, I don't describe myself as a rambler or a hiker or a trekker. I do some of the same things that hikers and, and trekkers do. I walk some of the same routes. Rambling seems kind of serious, but not hugely serious. It's a thing you do on a Sunday afternoon, perhaps with a group of other people. In England, there is a Ramblers Association. Hikers, I think, are a bit more serious. I think they, they probably have a rucksack, and they go driving at pace, really giving it some, some energy. I'm way more down at the bottom of this hierarchy of walking. You know, I'm a stroller or a meanderer. And this wonderful word that we have called ambling, which is rambling with the R taken away. But that's even far less serious than rambling. So we go for a walk? Well, yeah, but let's just go for an amble. Tramping? I do think at a certain point, if you're doing a walk and it gets a bit more serious or it's further than you think it was going to be, the last mile or so, you find that you're tramping rather than walking or hiking. You just get your head down and put one foot in front of another determinedly, and that's tramping. I have a friend in the States who sends me different words for walking. And she came up with this, this word called 
Codywumple, which I had quite literally never heard of before. It means to walk determinedly with no particular destination in mind. And I think I, I do an awful lot of that without knowing that that's what I was doing. You know, a good deal of, of my walking, and I think a lot of English walking is about the process rather than about the destination. Not knowing exactly where you're going is always a pleasure as long as you get somewhere somewhere that you, you like to be. You say in your book, walkers write, writers walk. Who are some of the writers that have been associated with rambling or walking, such as Daniel Defoe, Charles Dickens, and Robert Louis Stevenson, to name a few? I think it might be harder to find someone who hasn't written about it at some point. Samuel Johnson and his, his tour around England uh, and Scotland. I mean, Edgar Allan Poe. I mean, he's not English, but, you know, I mean, he lived in England for a while. Um, he was a great tramper. Samuel Beckett was one of the, the authors who excited me. Amongst the more modern, W.G. Seabold, uh, The Rings of Saturn. I mean, he lived in the area where I currently live, East Anglia. Ian Sinclair, who I know very, very slightly, he would probably call himself a psychogeographer. And his his great book for me is uh, Lights Out for the Territory. He walked such vast distances that he's always finding himself in wild, open land. And then Virginia Woolf and Mrs. Dalloway, particularly. And um, so there's that great book called Wanderers about women walkers, which has all sorts of people in it that some of whom I knew and some, some I didn't. I never thought an Ives Nin, for example, as much of a walker, although Dorothy Wordsworth, I certainly did. You know, she talks about Elizabeth Carter, who was involved with Samuel Johnson uh, and helped to edit his magazine, which was called The Rambler. I've never been quite sure where that name came from, where there was that sense of rambling freely through thoughts and, and ideas or whether it was about rambling on, you know, which I'm doing now, or whether it, whether it did refer to walking. The metaphor works either way, because when we ramble in conversation, that's a, that's a kind of walk, it's a kind of journey, isn't it? You referred to the book Wanderers, A History of Women Walking by Carrie Andrews, which is a wonderful book with great stories about the history of women walkers. For example, Dorothy Wordsworth, who would go out for a walk or a ramble and return three days later, and who felt that walking was in some ways an act of defiance, an act of assertion and self-knowledge. And the culture was such that women could go out for a ramble and feel safe or even find affordable lodging if they needed it. I can only imagine that Dorothy Wordsworth were such, such anomalies. They were so unusual. They obviously were very self-possessed and had a presence, and they wouldn't take any nonsense from anybody. But, I mean, that was a revelation to me, as I'm sure it was to, to a great many other people, that a woman could at any time could just go off and walk for a couple for two or three days. I mean that was that was a complete revelation to me and a very pleasing revelation. 
And as you say, it's about agency and about being able to assert their power and their independence. And who, who wouldn't want that? At present, on most days, there are thousands of people walking these public pathways that cross the entire British Isles. With walking clubs like the Ramblers, Walking Britain, and Wanderlust, do you think that these pathways run the risk of being overwhelmed in the future? Yeah, I mean, I think this is, is very interesting. An awful lot of people started to walk more seriously during COVID. We had a very different experience of COVID than you did. I mean, not, not that the, the disease was any different, but the, the political response to it. They couldn't go to pubs. They couldn't meet up in groups. So I think an awful lot of people did start to walk same way that an awful lot of people did a lot more gardening. I, I think it has caught on a bit. I mean, it has become a habit. The issue of whether it's going to sort of overwhelm the, the resources, we're fairly close to that in certain places at certain times. The Lake District, one of the, the very greatest places to, to walk in England. You know, I've been there and you kind of had to stand in line to get onto the path. There were so many people. You know, a nice warm Sunday afternoon, there's going to be a lot of people out there. And the same is true of the Peak District uh, around Sheffield, where I came from. I'd rather walk somewhere I've never walked before and, you know, in a perfect world. And it's not really possible to walk somewhere where nobody's ever walked before. We have learned recently that not all are in favor of having century-old public pathways going through their pastures, meadows, and backyards. A woman has put up a four-foot barricade covered with grease to stop ramblers from walking on footpaths through her property. Do you see rambling, wandering, and roaming having a future in the UK in this ever-changing world? Well, I don't know. I mean, there was another famous case uh, a few years back where Madonna, you know, Madonna and Guy Ritchie had, had bought a, a mansion, I suppose, with a piece of land that was adjacent to a bit of open territory where, you know, where the peasants were allowed to walk. They protested. It went to court. They were trying to get the path diverted. I don't know. The case you're talking about, about the woman with a four-foot barricade covered with grease. You know, if you're not there, it's hard to tell. I mean, they... I mean, maybe she'd had terrible trouble with antisocial behavior, but as it was written about in the English papers, it just sounded hideous. But I mean, I suppose the, the, the corollary is that if it had been happening in certain parts of the state, so it would have been a man with a shotgun rather than a woman with a, with a, with a greasy barricade. The simple answer is, do I think it's got a future? Yeah, I do. You know, this is you and the, and the environment, your feet on the ground. That's why those of us who do it, do it. And the people who don't do it probably don't understand why we do it anyway. I think that what really appeals to people about walking is its simplicity. Yeah, absolutely. So when was the last time you went for a ramble? And how different was it from a walk? If you want to make, if you want to make that distinction, then I, I'm, I'm happy to. Uh, my husband and friends came up from London. The, the place where I live is called the Dedham Vale. It's where John Constable, the painter, lived. And it's, and, you know, it's called Constable Country. 
and it's designated an area of outstanding natural beauty. And we, you know, we went down the footpath and followed the directions, followed the arrows, you know, and we stood where John Constable had stood and painted. And that felt, that felt like a ramble, you know. It was probably six, seven miles round trip, but that was a ramble. A couple of days back, I was in London, and I walked through the garden where Samuel peeked to have his office. I think what we're talking about sometimes when we're talking about these ancient pathways or these ancient streets is that, you know, we're walking where people have walked for thousands of years. That That is sort of a, an excitement. That is a, a, a thrill. I, you know, I get as much pleasure from a short walk as from a long walk, but it's the same pleasure. In your book, you refer to the idea that when walking, one is always walking in someone else's footsteps. You can't avoid it, can you? You know, in some places, you obviously get a very, very deep sense of connection. I mean, somewhere like Stonehenge, there was a time when you could just walk in between the, the giant stones. People have been coming here, walking here, doing whatever rituals they did, you know, for thousands of years. That's, that's incredibly moving, yes. Zen proverb. The journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step. You hope it takes you somewhere wonderful, and sometimes it does, and sometimes it doesn't. If you like the process itself, as I do, and as I, as I suspect you do, you don't make unreasonable demands upon yourself or upon the walk. You know, you set off, and whatever you experience, that's what you experience. The walk is the walk. So finally, is there such a thing as the perfect walk, one that is utterly different from all the others? Well, in one sense, no. Uh, every walk is imperfect. But in another sense, every single walk is a perfect walk. I hope you enjoyed this episode with Jeff Nicholson and that you get the chance to read his books, The Lost Art of Walking and Walking on Thin Air, and that you visit his website, jeffnicholsonwriter.com. I also hope you get a chance to read Wanderers, A History of Women Walking by Carrie Andrews. Nature Revisited would also like to update this episode. We have recently learned that the woman who built the four-foot barricade on the public footpath, which dates back to the 18th century, that goes through her property has been told she must remove it. Inspector Paul Freer ruled that the path must be free to use under the legal maxim, once a highway, always a highway. If you enjoyed this episode, please share with friends, family, and colleagues. If you would like to share your thoughts or comments on this or any other episode, please email me at nordenpro at gmail.com. That's Norden, N-O-O-R-D-E-N-P-R-O, at gmail.com.
nature.com. I would love to hear from you. You can follow Nature Revisited on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and our website, nordenproductions.com. The music for Nature Revisited is Tim Buckley, Buzz and Fly. Nature Revisited is produced by Stefan Van Orden and Charles Gagan. And I hope you will join us for the next edition of Nature Revisited. And in the meantime, remember, we are nature. <laughs>